listening to the podcast 82488. Social justice was a central part of family discussions. My mother would laugh, telling a story she loved about the time when I was fussing as a toddler. What do you want? She asked, trying to soothe me. Freedom, I yelled back. My mother surrounded herself with close friends who were really more like sisters. My godmother, a fellow Berkeley student who I knew as Aunt Mary, was one of them. They met through the civil rights movement that was taking shape in the early 1960s. And that was a selection from today's book, The Truths We Hold, An American Journey, by author Kamala Harris. Page eight marches. I have young memories of a sea of legs moving about of the energy and shouts and chants. Social justice was a central part of family discussions. My mother would laugh, telling a story she loved about the time when I was fussing as a toddler. What do you want? She asked, trying to soothe me. Freedom, I yelled back. My mother surrounded herself with close friends who were really more like sisters. My godmother, a fellow Berkeley student who I knew as Aunt Mary, was one of them. They met through the civil rights movement that was taking shape in the early 1960s and was being debated and defended from the streets of Oakland to the soapboxes in Berkeley's Sproul Plaza. As black students spoke out against injustice, a group of passionate, keenly intelligent, politically engaged young men and women found one another. My mother and Aunt Mary among them. They went to peaceful protests where they were attacked by a police with hoses. They marched against the Vietnam War and for civil rights and voting rights. They were together to see Martin Luther King Jr. speak at Berkeley, and my mother had a chance to meet him. She told me that at one anti-war protest, the marchers were confronted by the Hell's Angels. She told me that at another, she and her friends were forced to run for safety. With me in a stroller, after violence broke out against the protesters. But my parents and their friends were more than just protesters. They were big thinkers, pushing big ideas, organizing their community. Aunt Mary, her brother, my Uncle Freddie, my mother and father, and about a dozen other students organized a study group to read the black writers that the university was ignoring. 
they met on Sundays at Aunt Mary and Uncle Freddy's Harmon Street home. Page 24. Black woman working in public service. I've never forgotten how it made me feel as a young person to have these two icons, both larger than life, take the time to show an interest in me. In the summer of my sophomore year, I got an internship with Senator Alan Granston of California, who could have known that some 30 years later, I would be elected to the same Senate seat. I still have framed the thank you letter from his office manager, which hangs in my Senate office near where my own interns sit. When I find myself riding the Senate subway with interns, I often tell them, you're looking at the future. I loved going to the Capitol building every day that summer for work. It felt like the epicenter of change. And even as an intern sorting mail, I was thrilled to be a part of it. But I was even more mesmerized by the Supreme Court building across the street. I would walk across the street in the hot, humid summer when you could cut the air with a butter knife just so I could stand in awe of its magnificence and read the words engraved in marble above its entrance, equal justice under law. I imagined a world where that might be. After Howard, I returned home to Oakland and enrolled at UC Hastings College of the Law. I was elected president of the Black Law Students Association, BLSA, during my second year in law school. At the time, black students were having a harder time finding employment than white students, and I wanted to change that. As BLSA president, I called the managing partners of all the major law firms and asked them to send representatives to a job fair we were hosting at a hotel. When I realized that I wanted to work in the district attorney's office, that I had found my calling, I was excited to share the decision. Page 88 were in the air with no Wi-Fi. My 21-day election night was over and all I could do was sit there, alone with my thoughts, for five hours. Because the count had taken so long, there was only a month to process the victory before my swearing in. And beyond the election, I was also still processing the grief of my mother's death. She passed away the year before, in February 2009, as the long, hard-fought campaign was just getting underway. I will say more about this in a chapter to come, but needless to say, it was crushing to lose her. I knew what my election would have meant to her, how I wished 
when January 3, 2011 arrived, I walked down the stairs of the California Museum for Women, History, and the Arts in Sacramento to greet the standing room only crowd. We had arranged for a wonderful inaugural ceremony with Bishop T. Larry Kirkland Sr. giving the opening invocation and a gospel singer at the close. Flags were waving, dignitaries were there, observers peered down from the balcony. Maya held Mrs. Shelton's Bible as I took the oath of office. But what I remember most vividly about the day was the worry I felt about saying my mother's name in my address while keeping my composure. I'd practiced over and over again and choked up every time, but it was important to me that her name be spoken in that room because none of what I had achieved would have been possible without her. Today, with this oath, I told the crowd, we affirm the principle that every Californian matters. It was a principle that would be put to the test in the heady weeks. The end, the truths we hold, Kamala Harris.